for coming. Um, yeah, my name is Lindsay Hilsom. I'm the international editor of Channel 4 News. And um, I spent most of last year, or a lot of last year in Libya. I was also a bit in Egypt and in Bahrain. And it, last year was such an extraordinary year to be a, a foreign correspondent. I also reported the, the killing of Osama bin Laden. Sometimes I, I kind of forget that. In, in a normal year, that would be the highlight of the year. But last year, it's just sort of, oh, that was just one week in Pakistan, because it was such an extraordinary an extraordinary year. And um, what, as John said, I've spoken here before. I'm always aware that the members of the public who come are usually about 300 times better qualified than I am with endless degrees. And the journalists here, I could easily sit down and listen to any of, of you because you all have extraordinary experience. So I see this more as a forum to, to raise some of the, the issues and dilemmas which I found myself having when reporting Libya for discussion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show a short video. The, this video is um, it's not of one particular story. It's a kind of pull together of little clips from different stories. It's a bit like the 10-minute Hamlet, you know. It's, the, uh, it's the, the Libyan revolution in four minutes and three seconds. Um, and then, but that's sort of to remind us of, uh, of what it was all about. And then I was going to talk about three things to do with television journalism. Um, danger, depth, and bias. Because I think that those are three issues which have come up very much in the reporting of, of Libya. And then, um, if we've got time, I'll talk a little bit about um, the book and why, why I decided in the end I had to just sit in my study and put my head down and, and write. But let's uh, show the video first of all just to, to remind us of, uh, of what it was like. So as I say, that's the, the sort of shortened version. It's just a few clips to, to remind us. The sound wasn't very good in that last clip, and my excuse for that is that um, we were shot at in the middle of the edit. We were on the 23rd floor of um, the hotel, the Carinthia, and we prized the window open to put the satellite phone out. And uh, three bullets came straight through, whizzed past the producer's ear, hit the ceiling, and then down. And uh, so the editor and I went flat on the floor. And then you have those ridiculous moments. You think, what am I going to do now? You're lying there on the floor, and various rebels came up the stairs. And I didn't want, I was sort of on my back, and I didn't want to turn over in case that kind of heightened my profile. So, so the rebels pulled me out by my legs across the floor, straight into the lens of a French documentary cameraman. <laughs> One of the most inelegant moments in life. Anyway, so then we had to edit the rest of it in the corridor, and uh, so it was shorter than it was supposed to be, and the sound wasn't quite right. Anyway, that's an example of danger, which um, was fine. We were absolutely fine. But this was a very dangerous conflict. Um, two photographers were, were killed, Tim Hetherington and Chris Andrus, as I'm sure you know, in Misrata. Um, I know of at least seven journalists who were um, captured by... Gaddafi's forces and imprisoned. You were telling me about one of your colleagues from Brazil who this happened to. There were four from the New York Times. It was very, it was very dangerous, and it was very difficult to judge. And it was also the first conflict that we've had in a long time, where it was so easy um, to get to the front line. Um, most of the conflicts I covered in recent years, there have been sort of 
it's been quite difficult to get to the front line because you know, things are more controlled um, or you're on a, it's either so dangerous like Iraq and Afghanistan that you go on an embed so then you're with the British or the Americans and then you really if you go on the other side you're basically you're going to get kidnapped so we didn't really do that we couldn't do it very much um, but this one was you know back to the good old days um, and it's difficult because we are a danger to ourselves. But sometimes I was just desperate for, you know, I said, oh, please stop me going any further. Because um, it's, it's very difficult when you go through it yourself. I decided at one point, when we were in that sort of desert warfare bit, I, every time I went to the front line, I felt like a fool. And every time I didn't go, I felt like a coward. <laughs> and it was really difficult. And you're always aware of other people who are pushing further and thinking, oh gosh, you know, they're braver than me and I should do that. And then you think, oh. And it's very hard. And there were also a lot of um, young journalists who um, didn't have that much experience and didn't have big organisations behind them. Um, you know, I'm very lucky in that I work for Channel 4 News, I have ITN behind me, I've had hostile environment training, and I have a really sensible producer. And so every time I want to do something a bit silly, she says no. And that probably gives me the freedom to say I want to do it, even if I don't really, because I know she'll stop me. Now, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the younger journalists aren't, don't know themselves particularly well and don't, you know, and, have, and also, if something bad happens, don't have um, backup. And uh, I think this was a conflict where... This was a conflict where I spent a lot of time running around like somebody's auntie saying to young journalists, but please don't go there, or please get in the car with us, or please come back with us, because, because you, you worry about them. It was also a conflict where I think in terms of television, we, we got almost a new genre, and this was um, because of Sky. Um, because Sky was doing so much live. Now, for Channel 4 News, we don't have live, and so... Um, it wasn't like a pressure on me to be doing what they were doing um, because there's, you know, I, I can't be broadcasting live at midnight because we haven't got a program. I, I'm making stories which go out at seven o'clock every night. Um, but that was what Sky were, were doing. And um, I think it, it, you know, so people could actually watch what was happening, unfolding as it, uh, as it happened. And I think that that was extraordinary television and I think that it conveyed um, the excitement and the danger in a way that we've probably never been able to convey before but then I also have problems with it because there's been a lot of um, the, the main proponent of this was a cameraman called Gowen and um, and Alex Crawford who were just amazing and they are amazingly brave and they're much braver than me um, and they will now win um, every award that there is in the, in the television industry, and they deserve it. Um, but then you think, well, are we now um, rewarding risk-taking? Too much risk-taking? Question mark. Because I, I don't know the answer. There's been a lot of criticism of Rupert Wingfield Hayes from the BBC, who didn't do what Alex did. And um, he didn't do it. Part of the reason he didn't do it was because he had to go back to his hotel and edit a story for the 10 o'clock news. And so he wasn't there, you know, getting in first and putting it out live. Um, and then there have been reviews which have been very critical of him and basically saying, oh, you know, Sky was much better and Sky cleaned up and he was useless. Well, what they don't know is that Rupert was in a convoy coming into Tripoli um, and six people were killed around him, six of the rebels. 
the Rupert survived and his team survived and they're fine. And I saw him a few hours later. So, you know, you can reward risk-taking and you can say that, you know, this is the greatest television ever, and in lots of ways it is. But there are a lot of dilemmas with this. And, um, and I worry about it. And I think I'm quite lucky because I don't have the pressure to do that, to go live. Um, and also because I'm trying to do something slightly different on Channel 4 News. So those of you who watch it know that we try and, you know, we will run stories a bit longer and um, a bit more depth. So that brings me to my second thing, depth. Well, of course, no television has a lot of depth because, you know, four minutes, five minutes, that's not, you know, very many words. It's not like a, a newspaper article. And so you think, but what is, what is television good for? What is it really good for? And I think apart from that, um, that live stuff, it's about giving people the chance to talk. And that's what I really like about it. Um, I love Mukhtar, my friend who was going to give the painting back. Um, you know, something like that kind of moment, I think, really gives you a sense of, of, of people. And Wanis Elisawi, oh, this makes me weep. The, the Abu Sali massacre, which occurred in 1996, which was when you had um, all these prisoners, uh, most of them Islamists, and basically they rioted against the conditions in which they were kept, and the conditions were appalling. And um, then Abdullah Sanusi, who is the brother-in-law of Gaddafi, came in um, with various um, others, and they were supposed to negotiate improved conditions, and they thought that they had negotiated improved conditions. And then they were, some of them were put on a bus to be sent for hospital treatment because they were sick and they hadn't been allowed hospital treatment before, and others were taken into this courtyard. This was in 1996. And uh, they stationed soldiers all around and killed the lot and killed the ones on the bus as well. And the day we went to Abu Salim, which was about four days, three, four days after it fell in August, um, and I was there and the producer came up and said, oh, we found somebody who speaks English who seems to be an eyewitness, and that was when I met Juanis. And it was the most extraordinary thing to be with this man who had spent 19 years in this prison. And he's an engineer. He's a very serious man. He's a very religious man. Um, I've grown to know him very well since that first time we met. And he, he said to me, I said, well, you know, will you talk to us on camera? And he said, you know, people have been trying to get me to talk to the BBC, New York Times. He said, but I just haven't felt ready. He said, but since I've met you here, okay, I'll talk today. So he told me his story. It was the first time he'd ever told his story, except to his wife. And to me, that's the most incredible. There was a moment where I didn't put a moment on there. He, he's so controlled. He's totally controlled. And then there was one moment where he was showing me the cell he was in for 13 years. And he just put his head in his hands and he said, I don't know why I came here today. And that was as close as he got to really showing emotion. And I felt... In that, I thought, well, that's also what television does. <coughs> Apart from showing you that, you know, the excitement, the danger, that's something where, you know, <laughs> the power of his words and his presence and what he says. Um, to me, that's, that's what's really important. And that's what is beyond. I'm gonna, uh, Charlie Brooker in The Guardian wrote a rather wonderful um, piece at the end of the year where he's reviewing the year 2011. 
Um, and he wrote, um, this is what he wrote, um, after a while, everything is reduced to an impressionist smear in your head. The protracted battle for Libya becomes a blur of tarmac sands and black smoke, intercut with footage of people repeatedly firing into the air as if they've declared war on the sky. <laughs> Which I thought was absolutely brilliant description of what a lot of what we, we did was. And which is why, for me, it's really important to also try and do these stories with people um, which are different and which are quieter and slower, but which tell you something about, about what people were going, going through. Then the last issue I wanted to, to touch on was bias, because we, ha we Western journalists, I mean, have been accused of being cheerleaders for NATO and for uh, being too enthusiastic about the, about the war in Libya and about ousting Gaddafi. And I think that that throws up a lot of difficult issues, because I, I think it's a not unfair criticism. I think that there is something in that. Um, I mean, I am not, you know, equidistantly po you know, poised in this thing. I actually um, do not like regimes which mow down 1,200 men in a prison. I don't think on the one hand that's a bad idea and on the other hand it's quite good. I think it's utterly abysmal and it's our job as journalists to expose that kind of thing. And one of the things I felt strongly in Libya was guilt, that I hadn't done it before because I hadn't known about it. And when you think about Halabja, you know, which is the signature atrocity of Saddam Hussein's Iraq, you know, that was quite widely covered. We all knew about the gassing of the Kurds. How many of us knew about the murder, the mass murder at Abu Salim? Almost none of us. There was an amnesty report which came out within a week, which was just a sort of indication something had crept out. And then for years there was nothing because Libya was totally closed. And then by the time the information <coughs> did come out, which was sort of dribs and drabs in the early 2000s. I mean, even the families didn't know what had happened. The families didn't know. They had no idea. And this is, I mean, this is the thing that gets me more than anything. I, I did a story quite near the beginning with some of the families of the victims of Abu Salim. And I met a little old man, and he said, for um, 14 years, he said, I would go to see my brother-in-law who was in Abu Salim and I would go with his wife and his children and we would go up every two months and we would take food and clothes and we were never allowed to see him and so we would leave the things with the, the guards and we would spend a couple of days at the prison gate and then we would come back and he said and we did that for 14 years before they told us he was dead and you think my god my God, not just to kill someone, not just to disappear someone, but to let their family continue to bring them food and clothing when you know they're dead. That takes a particular kind of regime. So, um, so I don't feel unbiased. Um, so how does one deal with that? Should we have, therefore, been more... Um, a should we have been less sympathetic to the to the rebels? Were we too sympathetic to the rebels? I think that there's something in that. I think we were. I think that um, it was quite hard not to be because of what we knew about Gaddafi's regime. And I think that they were very appealing. And there were, or I think that we, I think an awful lot of people spoke English, and it was easy to communicate with people, and they seemed to have a lot of ideals and and so on. Um, and yet. 
obviously you're not going to go straight from dictatorship to democracy. It's not going to be all right. I mean, the legacy of 42 years is not that suddenly everything's fine. And I think that, um, you know, there was a whole question throughout about what was the role of the Islamists. And we really didn't know. I mean, we spent quite a lot of time trying to find that out. And it wasn't always easy to find that out. It's particularly not easy to find things out if you are doing primarily frontline reporting, you know, where you have three or four hours a day when you're actually on the ground reporting. And, um, you know, and it's all things going, things going bang. And so I think, you know, should... You, and also, it's very, so what do you do? You, you're reporting that and then, you know, you stand up like Cassandra in the flak jacket saying, oh, but I expect it'll all turn to a ball of shit soon. <laughs> um, it's very, you know, it's, it's very difficult to make those, to make those judgments. Um, and I think, but I think that there is an issue about us being too enthusiastic and so now... Um, when it is needless to say going to a border ship, which I could have told you if you asked me, because it always does. Um, my father always used to say, no situation so bad that it can't get worse. Um, that that you can't, that you've got, um, you know, the, there are no political parties in Libya. There was no state in Libya. There was nothing there. So all you have is a great big hole. It's a great big vacuum. And obviously into that you get militias. Um, you get Islamists. You get a lot of rivalry between the towns. Uh, people talk about tribes, but it's more in Libya, from my understanding, it's more to do with different towns, because different towns had, very, had their own militias, and now they won't put their, their weapons down. Um, so all of those, to me, all of those issues come up because of the nature of Gaddafi's rule. Um, but I, I think that, you know, then maybe one comes back to to depth and knowledge. I mean, having one of the difficulties of reporting a conflict like this is how much knowledge did we have before? Well, the answer is not enough. And having then spent the last three months, the three months of last year, um, writing the book, um, of course, I'm now absolutely horrified at the idea that I reported anything at all before I you know, read 20 books and did what you have to do in order to, to write a book. But that is the nature of the news that we do that. And I think it's partly because of all these issues and dilemmas that I, I wanted to, to write the book, and also because um, of people I met, like Mukhtar and Wanis, who, um, who had never spoken. And I think that that's an incredible privilege that you go to a country where people have you know, lived under repression for so long, and um, they've never been able to, to speak before. And, you go, and it was quite amazing. I mean, it, 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 it was so easy. I would sit there, when I was doing the research for the book, which was in um, October, um, every day I would pass by the Radisson Hotel, because that was where a lot of information was, and there was a press office there and so on, and I would, would sit there and um, have a lemon juice and, and uh, go on the computer, and uh, somebody came up to me and said, um, hello, Lindsay, and I said, hello, who are you? Two men with big beards, and uh, they said, um, oh, can we tell you our story of um, extraordinary rendition and how MI6 uh, forced me back from Hong Kong to Libya? I said, you know what? Yes, you can tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fine. <laughs> when shall we do that? <laughs> and so, because people are so desperate to tell them that story. The other guy, I mean, the other guy who he was with, that was a guy called Samuel Sadi, whose story is in the book. And there was another guy whose story is on the book called Ishmael Kamoka, who was another guy who was. Um, 
the great bearded person who lived in Britain, and um, we um, we were chatting at one point. The um, he said to me, so he said, when you go to Iran, you always wear a headscarf, but you don't wear it anywhere else. So I explained, you know, yeah, well, in Iran, there's a law that you have to wear a headscarf, and so I wear it when you have when I have to by law, etc. I said, you seem to know an awful lot about me. And he said, yeah, yeah, he said, I was on a terrorism charge and they couldn't, uh, but they couldn't pin it on me. So then I was on a control order. So I was in Belmarsh for two years and we all watch Channel 4 News in Belmarsh. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's great, isn't it? That's your captive audience for Channel 4 News <laughs> in the high security prison. He then said, actually, it's very funny, he then said there was a sort of gap in the conversation and he said, um, how do you think the Lib Dems are going to do next time? <laughs> was just brilliant. Um, so what I'm trying to illustrate there is how, how desperate people were to, to talk and tell their stories. Um, I'm going to end by just reading um, a little excerpt from the, the book, which I think, which is sort of meant to illustrate how different it is from, from doing television and what you can, can do in, in prose. This is the beginning of, of chapter nine, which is the chapter about the fall of Tripoli. Sometimes, as the gunfire sputtered outside, Ahmed would close his eyes and think of Seattle. True, he'd screwed things up by dropping out of college, but nonetheless it was a good life in America. He was 34, a jeans and leather jacket guy. Still no wife, no kids, no stability. He wondered if his family would mind if he married an American girl. He was good with computers. Maybe he'd go back to college, get a job in IT there. Then as he opened his eyes, the present would come rushing in on him. He had work here to do here in Tripoli. Every few days he went to his friend's office. No one seemed to mind his presence. They would chat. Then he would go and make coffee for himself and for all the men as they started their meeting in the room next door. He would sit at the computer, carefully leaving the door open a crack so he could hear what was being discussed. After checking thoroughly for bugs and malware, he would slip his memory stick into the USB port and start writing his report, his ears always open to what was happening on the other side of the wall. <coughs> when he had finished, he would open the email and put the report into drafts, never sending anything. He'd take out the memory stick, making sure not a trace of what he'd been doing was left on the computer. After the meeting finished, he would hang out for an hour or so, shooting the breeze, trying not to think of the memory stick, burning a hole in his pocket. Time to go home. In London, Ahmed's brother-in-law would open up his email and go into drafts. He would read the report, compare it with others, and then he would forward it with a covering note to his contacts. Why did they never suspect? Why did they never question him? Every day it seemed more incredible. His friend was one of Gaddafi's closest aides, and officially Ahmed had no business in that office. Ahmed's family had left Libya for the US after their properties, lands and businesses were confiscated in 1978, only returning in the 1990s. Nothing had been returned and everyone knew they had a grudge against Gaddafi. Yet here was Ahmed sitting in the heart of the Libyan government military planning machine, sending intelligence reports to NATO. And so that I read, um, after I interviewed Ahmed, not his real name, um, the first time I, I I wrote that in a longer bit, and then I saw him again, and I, I read it out to him. Um, and uh, he looked at me and he said, how did you get inside my head? Mm. And I said, because you told me. <laughs> you basically told me all, all of that. 
and I think that was what made me really want to to write the book because because when you spend time with people as opposed to doing a quick TV interview you get to sort of feel their emotions you get to understand their background and and, and, and so on and that's something um, you really can't do in the heat of the moment of a, of a TV report so that's half an hour. So, I mean, I'm sure other people have lots of other experiences because I know many of you have also covered conflicts and, and so on, and um, presumably have ideas on danger, depth, and, and bias, all of which are dilemmas for me, nothing that I've completely sorted out.